0: All right, you guys. Now, you guys have some little notes at the very back of your thing, right? So you guys might want to put these there or put them on the inside of that front cover. But here's some preliminary thoughts that I want you all to quickly write down, okay? Because this is important. And really, may it be a challenge to each one of us. So here it is. So as we begin this last journey in theology tonight, First, let me encourage all of us, this is number one, be Bereans, be Bereans. In Acts 17, God praised the Bereans for being good students of God's word, of his word, and testing everything that they heard from the apostle Paul, mind you, against his word. And so, we want to praise him and be praised by him by being good Bereans ourselves, amen? All right, second, We all need to be humble about our own positions and gracious to each other about their opinions, excuse me. Now you may find yourself tonight faced with a different interpretation than you've ever heard of in the past. That's okay. None of us have all of our theological ducks in a row. Exactly, right? That won't happen until we get to heaven. But may we always come to God's word humble and teachable. That is the number one roadblock for you to stop growing immediately is when you start growing in pride. As most of you know, besides being a pastor in Germany for nearly 10 years, I also taught theology at the European Bible Training Center for basically those 10 years. I've spent countless countless hours studying the different areas of theology And during the course of that study, I came to the conclusion that most areas of theology, we can pretty much be dogmatic on. I know I've mentioned this before in the past, but let me just say it again. However, it's a big however, in the area of eschatology, that is the study of the end times, we would all be wise to show extra grace. Why? Why? Because prophecy is always best understood after it's been fulfilled, right? (laughs) It's always best. We can be dogmatic about it then, right? There are good believers who hold to different uh, views of the end times than I do, and you will run into them yourselves over the years, and perhaps you yourself are convinced of something differently. That's okay. We need to be convinced in our own minds and hearts while at the same time being gracious to one another, amen? I really mean that. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 14 verse five. Write this down. One person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Do you remember the last part? Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. You be a student of the scriptures, You be the Berean, and you come to those conclusions, but be kind and respectful of all those who might disagree with you and might have a different opinion you. Third, may we not be divisive. The elders and I ask you to please not, please do not allow confusion or division, and in your own mind, hopefully, right, be convinced in your own mind, but please Do not try to persuade others here at CBC to a point of view that differs than from what we officially teach. All right? You can see 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 12 on that. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's a voice of sad experience, actually. Back in Germany, we had a young man in our congregation who was convinced that we were going to go through the tribulation. And Dieter, my fellow pastor, and myself were convinced that we as believers are not going to go through the tribulation, as you're going to hear tonight. So we did sat down with him for hours, carefully explaining, explaining to him why we, believe that we why we believe what we believed, but he rejected that for whatever reason, and that was completely fine. We were not forcing him to believe what we believe. But then... This is where the problem came in. He started going from person to person in the congregation saying that we were actually bad shepherds for not warning people of the coming tribulation, that we were not preparing people of this tribulation. And in, in turn, he confused and frightened a lot of sheep, and that's not okay. In stark contrast some years later, I met another brother in the Lord who was here in the States, who wanted to explain to me some areas of theology where he differed than I did. And I appreciate that man so much because at the end of our conversation, this is what he said to me, and I quote, Carrie, I just wanna let you know that I'm not going to be talking about this theological difference to others in the congregation. I'm not here to stir up trouble, end quote. Brothers and sisters, that is a real mark of maturity. Not every theological difference is a heresy. If it deals with the gospel, it's a heresy, right? And then we should go after that person. Not every theological difference is also a reason to divide fellowship. And this is especially true when we're seeking to understand prophecies, things that have not yet happened. I think a lot of things are going to happen a lot differently than what we think. All right, so those are my three points. You guys got them? All right, so may we all be faithful in them, you guys. Now, one more thing before we get going. I've adopted a lot of my material tonight in those notes from Daryl Nunley and David Reagan's book, The Basics of Bible Prophecy. Um, So again, every one of these things, I have tons of resources I can give you guys, okay? Okay and probably more than, than you'll ever have time to read in this lifetime, because it takes a lifetime. But this is an important area of study. Eschatology really is an important area. Let's look at page one, or whatever page you guys have. This is one on my notes. You're on five? Okay, good. Eschatology, folks, is an area of doctrine where views vary widely, even among conservative evangelicals. And my goal tonight is to present a concise yet comprehensive overview of end times doctrine. This timeline of end times events is based on a literal or that means a plain sense interpretation of prophecy unless it's clearly symbolic in which case I've sought to provide the clear meaning of the symbol. Now listen, what makes, let me say one more thing. What makes eschatology specifically difficult? When I was teaching through all the different theologies um, in Berlin, I really had no problems until I came to this one because I myself was not fully convinced, even after having gone through the master's seminary and everything else. It wasn't until I started reading my Bible through four times in a year. That's one time every three months from Genesis to Revelation, Genesis to Revelation. And I did that for five or six years and i got such a education by going through the bible that quickly that many times through that i felt like sometime during the middle or towards the end i thought like you know what i really really and i didn't mean it in a cocky way i think i really understand this book i know what's in this book so it takes a lifetime to put together eschatology so young men this is not your game i'm sorry I'll just put it bluntly. This is not your game. This is an old man's game, right? Because you need to have time to go through it and to think through it and to really dig into these passages and do them justice and not just listen to a podcast or two and think you know what's going on. So I say that with humility back to you, all right? And I, and I mean that. And so may we all be humble and teachable, right? all right, and respectful of others. All right, let's begin our time together by looking at some reasons for studying Bible prophecy. Now, most pastors and most churches do everything they can to steer clear of Bible prophecy, right? Not drive into the the deep mud, (laughs) right? But that's unfortunate. And that's unfortunate for a number of reasons. First, look at your notes now, because our God is a God of prophecy. Beloved, we worship a God of prophecy and that's your blank. Listen to Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning. Isn't that cool? There it is right there. And from ancient times things which have not been done saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it Surely I will do it. Sounds like a God of prophecy to myself. So that's one good reason to study Bible prophecy. A second really good reason to study Bible prophecy is because it reminds us of who is in control. In other words, it it reminds us that God is sovereign. Psalm 103, verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty, what? Rules over all. Amen to that. And when we see Bible prophecy fulfilled, we're reminded that God is in full control of world history. I love Psalm 2. Don't have time to go through it right now, but if you guys don't know or uh, haven't read Psalm 2 in a little while, go back and read Psalm 2. A third reason why we should study Bible prophecy is because it validates God's word. The Bible is the only book in the world that contains hundreds, that's your blank, of already fulfilled, verifiable prophecies. Fulfilled prophecies prove that the Bible is God's revelation to man. Do you realize that the Bible is the only religious book that has prophecy in it and fulfilled prophecy? None of the others even dare to do that, but the Bible does, not just with a few, but hundreds. A fourth and really good reason why we shouldn't avoid Bible prophecy is between one-fourth and one-third of the Bible is prophetic in nature. Should all that material be ignored? I think not. The Apostle Paul wrote this in 1 Thessalonians 5.20, Do not, what? Despise prophecies, exactly. The fifth reason why we should be studying Bible prophecy is the validation of Jesus as God. An angel told the Apostle John, that prophecy is a witness of Jesus' divinity in Revelation 19.10. Go look that up. Jesus fulfilled 109 separate prophecies in his first coming. Several of them, you'll hear people say like 300. A lot of these were repeated, okay? They're repeated prophecies. So, But unique, separate prophecies, there's 109 of his first coming. Now, the odds of anyone accidentally doing that is beyond Astronomical, you know, any type of uh, probability, reality of probability. The sixth reason for studying Bible prophecy is so that we might use it as a tool of evangelism. The first gospel sermon ever preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost was based on Bible prophecies. We looked at that last week, didn't we? As part of our what we saw last week, and all throughout the. Um, the apostles, when they're preaching, they, they intertwine Bible prophecy and say, hey, listen, here it he is. Jesus fulfilled this. And so they did that. Philip the Evangelist used Bible prophecy to share the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. Look up Acts 8. Now we can honestly spend so much time in all this, but you guys know how many notes we have tonight, so we're gonna keep chugging along. The seventh reason is for a tool of Teaching. The Bible prophets didn't spend all their time talking about the future. They spent much more time, that's your blank, applying the word of God to the contemporary problems of the day, like idolatry. Okay, there's some verses there like hypocrisy. A couple more verses. Another reason why Bible believers need to be studying Bible prophecy is to encourage our growth in Christ-likeness. Now, pastor, why would you say that? Think about it. When believers realize that Jesus is right around the corner in coming, returning to this earth. And that is return could occur at any moment. Those truths should result in spiritual preparation. That is, should result in our sanctification, right? Letting go of the things that really don't matter in this lifetime and pressing forward to the heavenlies. If you guys knew that the Lord was gonna come back tomorrow and he were to secretly tell you or something like that, (laughs) First off, that's not going to happen, I know. (laughs) Don't think I've gone wonky. But you'd go home and you'd set your house in order. You knew you were going to die tomorrow or tonight. You'd go home and you'd set your house in order, right? Hey, that has a way of, uh, of really sanctifying us. Okay, let's keep going on. Ninth reason to study Bible prophecy is so that we're not kept in the dark with what's going on. One of the most important reasons for studying Bible prophecy is that it contains signs indicating the season of the Lord's return. The Bible teaches that we cannot, listen carefully to this. You guys might want to underline this whole part here. The Bible teaches that we cannot know the day or the hour of the Lord's return. That's true. Matthew 24 says that. 1 Thessalonians 5. But it does indicate that we can know the time and the seasons. That's important, folks. First Thessalonians 5, Hebrews 10, Matthew 24, it says you will not be caught off guard, right? He's gonna come like a thief in the night for the rest of the world, but not for us, not for us. Those who know Bible prophecy are not bewildered by the increase in immorality and violence, are you? You shouldn't be. It's been, it's been prophesied long ago, Matthew 24, 2 Timothy 3. The never-ending crises in the Middle East, Zechariah 12. And the raging apostasy in the church, 2 Timothy 4, 2 Peter 2. All these are prophesied for the end times. You can even put in their rampant drug use. I just read a headlines before I came here tonight. And uh, how the Biden administration is trying to relax, now I know it's not this way, the marijuana usage laws across the country. And they said, so we can have another stolen election. Now that probably right there just got kicked me off. <laughs> <laughs> Pastor and author Adrian Rogers, 1931 to 2005. I once met Adrian Rogers at a Shepherds Conference He said this, the world is growing gloriously dark. And no one can understand this insightful statement without a knowledge of Bible prophecy, right? You understand what that means, exactly what he said. Now, a 10th reason, I'm just giving you 10, so many more. The study of Bible prophecy is that it produces a heavenly hope in the believer. Do you have a heavenly hope? I hope so. Not just if you have gray hair, right? I'm talking about all of us. Not me. I mean, I'm one of you get gray hairs. Romans 8.18. Look at what it says here. Love these verses. Next two. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen. What about another really, really good one? First Corinthians 2, 9. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Can you guys say amen to that? That is so awesome. We can't even conceive of the things um, Paul is saying to the Corinthians of what God has prepared for us. The Bible pro- Bible prophecy is full of glorious promises. Let me give you a couple. Of, resurrection of the dead. It means all our loved ones who are gone before us, and for ourselves, even. Rewards for our good works. Gonna add that there. Good works. New glorified bodies. How many of you guys looking forward to that? Yeah. Just a few of us? The rest of you? <laughs> Reigning with Jesus. Victory over Satan. Eternal life. It's all glorious, glorious promises. Now, even though we should study Bible prophecy for a number of very good reasons, please also be aware that Many abuses of Bible prophecy have occurred in the past and are occurring today and will occur in the future if the Lord does not come back. So that's number two, A, the abuse of Bible prophecy. There's abuses all over, and that's really what turns so many people off. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming for since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Bible prophecy has been one of the most ignored and abused portions of God's word, even among God's people. What are some reasons why people ignore, even avoid, and abuse Bible prophecies? Well, how about this? Number one, I'll give you guys a number of reasons. It's too complex. That's your blank. You have to have a degree in theology to understand it. The answer to that is no, right? Yes, it takes study, but you don't need a formal theological degree to understand God's word. Some of the people who have known God's word the best who have never gone to seminary, and I really mean that. What you need is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You need a desire to study, 2 Timothy 2.15, like a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth, that's 2 Timothy 2.15, and a willingness to listen to sound Bible teachers. That is, once again, be humble. God gave who to the church to train the church? Pastors and teachers is what the Bible says, right? Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. So when people think, hey, I can do this on my own, pull myself up by my own bootstraps, you just cutting yourself off by your own, at your own kneecaps. I would also add to that, that point right there, a good strong dose of humility in a good Bible teaching church. Another objection given is that Bible prophecy is too otherworldly. But if that's truly the case, then why did the apostles constantly use prophecy in their teaching and preaching, right? Again, go back to Acts chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 4. The apostle Paul and Peter both commanded us to respect and pay attention to Bible prophecy. Third, some say that it's all pie in the sky type of thinking, right? My answer to that is hardly. (laughs) Rather, it's full of God's precious promises concerning the future. Others say it's divisive. That's your next blank. It's divisive. My answer to that is yes, it can be. If it's taught dogmatically, With arrogance, just as is the case with any other portion of God's Word, correct? Still others object and say, oh, that's just Old Testament stuff. And Jesus revered and quoted the Old Testament prophecies again and again and again, did he not? And we're exhorted to pay attention to the teachings of the Old Testament. Do you guys realize in Romans 15, 4 that it says These, all the things that have written prior times have been written for us? Paul's saying this to the Roman believers, right? A congregation made up of uh, Greek or Gentile believers and, and Hebrew believers. Others think that Bible prophecy simply doesn't apply to them, so they're not interested, right? That's another common objection. John the Baptist presented a prophecy in John 3 36 that applies to every person who has ever lived. Namely, that those who put their faith in Jesus will have eternal life, and those who do not will experience the wrath of God. That was Bible prophecy. Prophecy is full of warnings to unbelievers and precious promises for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Still others say, but Pastor, it's just simply too scary. It's full of bad news. Yes, true. There are a lot of scary, frightening things, but only for those who reject God's gift of love and grace in Jesus. For those who accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there's only gloriously good news. Amen? Sincerely. (laughs) It's great news. That's why Adrian Rogers could say what he did. The world is growing gloriously dark. Another reason why some ignore or even avoid Bible prophecies is that they say, well, if it's for real, then why hasn't Jesus returned? Well, the apostle Peter tells us the only reason Jesus has not returned is because God, what, 2 Peter 3, does not wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'm so glad that God did not come back in 1988. Because I didn't get saved until 1991. Remember those like 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988? So, and finally, some say that if it's for real, then why are there so many prophecies that haven't been fulfilled? Beloved, the only prophecies that have not been fulfilled yet are those that relate to the future. That means that the Bible right now is, guess what? It's batting a 1,000. It is perfect in every single one of its prophecies. Every single one of them. Now, we just looked at some reasons why people both ignore and avoid Bible prophecies. So what are some ways in which people abuse Bible prophecies? Let me give you some of the most common ways. You guys, and this is all kind of introductory stuff. All right, we're going to get into our our study in just a second. First, understand that the Bible warns us about apostates. Apostates. Now, apostates are people who profess to be Christians, but who dismiss prophetic passages as meaningless poetry or argue that the prophecies were written after, that's your blank, the event that was prophesied. There's all kinds of people like that today. Usually just a bunch of liberal people who don't believe in God's word. The second way in which Bible prophecy is abused is by spiritualizing it. Call these the spiritualizers. These are Christians who argue that prophecy never means what it says, so they spiritualize it. However, Bible prophecy should be interpreted literally unless it is clearly symbolic, and the context will tell us that. I want you to underline that sentence. That's super key. Bible prophecy should be interpreted literally unless it is clearly symbolic, and the context will tell us that. For example, all the prophecies about our Lord's first advent meant exactly what they said. For example, he was born of a virgin. Literal? Yes. He was born in Bethlehem. Literal or figurative? Literal. He, he lived in Galilee. Literal or figurative? Literal. Therefore, we should believe, again, that's a three of the 109, right? We should believe that the second coming prophecies will also be fulfilled literally. That is so crucial. God is not gonna trick us in the, in the ninth hour or the, you know what I'm saying, at the very last. Like, well, I'm gonna change my hermeneutic on you guys. You know what I'm saying? Right at the end there. We'll talk about hermeneutics in just a second. A third way in which Bible prophecy is often abused is by those whom I would classify as fanatics. Now, these are Christians who believe in Bible prophecy, but who engage in wild speculations about things like the identity of the Antichrist. Have you guys ever heard of Ronald Wilson Reagan? Six, six, six. You know, six letters in, in each one of those names. Was Reagan the Antichrist? No. <laughs> <laughs> or the date of Jesus' return, like 1988. You know, 88 reasons why Jesus is returning in 1988. Or then the next year is like 89 reasons. Well, he's turning and returning in 1989. However, we need to go where the Bible goes and stop where the Bible stops, right? Hey, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to know. God knows. And finally, one more. We come to the apathetic. These are Christians who are either cold in the faith or simply too lazy to study Bible prophecy. But apathy, apathy, apathy should have no place in the Christian life. You can underline that. That's for any of us. Satan doesn't want anyone studying Bible prophecy because prophecy contains the revelation of Satan's ultimate doom and demise, Right? while we're revealing the absolute victory of, Je- of Jesus. And furthermore, it's so much easier to deceive people who don't know what the Bible says in a particular area as opposed to those who do, right? You know, get into the whole UFO phenomenon, you know what I'm saying, a little bit. And unbelievable, you know, people have been swallowing this hook, line, and sinker for generations. Well, when the rapture happens... I believe that they're going to use that narrative right there. It's all ready to go. So the next question we need to tackle is the interpretation of Bible prophecy or hermeneutics. In other words, how should we read prophetic literature? And I am so glad that you guys are asking that question. Bible prophecy, like the rest of scripture, was meant to be understood by the believer. Okay. God intended it to be understood. First Corinthians two, twelve through thirteen. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Listen to this, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but by those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. We can also go to Deuteronomy twenty-nine, twenty-nine. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever, right? Remember I told, told you guys that's the secret verse for the theologian, right? If you don't know something, just pull out Deuteronomy twenty nine, twenty There's a God-given meaning to all scripture, folks. Understanding that meaning is the task of hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is simply the art and science of biblical interpretation, all right? There are some core Principles to keep in mind as you approach Bible prophecy. So let's just go through some of them. We can spend the rest of the night going through a, a, a small jet tour course through hermeneutics. We taught that class a couple years ago. I believe Ken taught that class a couple years ago. Excellent. We'll offer it again in the future sometimes. If you've never taken a course on hermeneutics, you need to. Okay, let's look at this real quick. First, when you're approaching scripture Actually, any genre of scripture, you must begin with a right attitude. Checking how we're doing on time. Okay, we're, we're okay. Just came to my one quarter mark and we're four minutes over. I think we're okay though. Come with a childlike faith, believing that God wants us to understand what he has said and that when he speaks, he means what he says. I love this quote from Dr. Henry Morris. Please circle this, underline it, do whatever you can, but remember it. Dr. Henry Morris addressed this issue when he said this, revelation is not difficult to understand, it is difficult to believe. If you will believe it, you will understand it. So I love Dr. Morris because this guy was a famous creation scientist, and he wrote an excellent commentary on the book of Genesis but he also loved the book of Revelation and he wrote an excellent commentary on the book of Revelation. Can't high, I can't recommend those two books highly enough. Second, always look for the plain sense meaning of every passage, which is most often the intended meaning. This is key. A good rule for the interpretation of all of scripture, including prophecy, is this one. If the plain sense makes good sense, don't seek any other sense lest you end up in nonsense or with nonsense. That saying's been around for a number of generations but it's a good one, it's a good one. If the plain sense makes good sense, don't look for any other sense lest you end up with nonsense. A third key principle to keep in mind when interpreting Bible prophecy is context. This is always right the golden rule of Bible interpretation. Always consider the context w- which determines the meaning of words. In Psalm 50, verse 10, God says that the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him. And the context indicates that the word thousand is, in, is symbolic for many. We clearly understand that. In other words, God owns Everything does he own, even the uh, one thousand and one hill? The answer is yes. We all understand that, so that's the context there. But in Revelation chapter twenty, we are told no less than six times that the Lord is returning to reign for a thousand years. The context makes it clear that the word thousand, I believe, is literal. I really do. And it's said there six times. If God wanted to, if he really wanted to say Jesus was going to reign for 1,000 literal years, he could not have said it any clearer than, than it is right now. Does that make sense? A fourth key hermeneutical principle to keep in mind is that scripture interprets scripture. A correct interpretation is always consistent with all the rest of scripture. Avoiding hanging doctrine on isolated verses is crucial. All verses on a particular topic must be compared and your interpretation must fit with all of them. In other words, when we do systematic theology, guess what we're doing? We're taking the whole Bible and we're saying, we're serving the whole Bible and saying, okay, this is everything that says about God the Father. This is everything that says about God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Miracles, you guys get angels, Satan, demons, end times. That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And all of us that 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 are standing, I'm standing on years and years, hundreds of years of shoulders of giants, men who knew their Bible way better than I do. Does that make sense? And we all are, we benefit from that. But, A key rule is your interpretation has to fit in with all the other interpretations, all right? It's called the analogy of faith, the analogia scriptura. Okay, now believe it or not, that was all key information but it was all just introduction. You guys ready to strap up your belts or click in your belts so we can really get going? Let's begin with the four major ways that people view the end times. These are four broad ways that people look at the end times, okay? So there are four major ways in which end times prophecies have been interpreted. And it's basically all based off one verse, Revelation 20, verse four. And they saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. When interpreted for its plain sense, meaning this verse leads to a view or the view called pre-millennialism. Now, I will probably say pre because that's a lot easier to say than all the, rather than the whole word. So, but if you interpreted this verse and other verses like it, symbolically, it leads to a view based upon spiritualizing prophecy. So let's begin with how these different four viewpoints developed. Okay, we're going to start with the oldest one first, and that is called historic premillennialism. This was a viewpoint of the early church, and I'll prove this later on. I've got articles here, I'm going to show you why I think that. This was the viewpoint of the early church until the year 400 AD. The church age will be followed by seven years of tribulation when God pours out his wrath upon the earth. Then Jesus will appear in the heavens at the end of the tribulation. The saints living and dead will meet him in the sky and immediately return with him to earth to reign with him from Jerusalem. At the end of his reign, the earth will be consumed by fire, producing a new and perfect perfected earth. The saints will then live with God eternally on the new earth. This view is based upon a literal interpretation of Bible passages. All right. Let's go to the next one that came about in the history of the church. This one's pretty easy to pin back. The second view was developed by St. Augustine. If you don't know how to pronounce his name, there you go. Around 400 AD. The term millennial" literally means no thousand years. The A at the beginning uh, negates whatever comes afterwards. So amillennialists... Believe that the millennium is the current spiritual reign of Christ over the church, and that it will continue until He returns for His saints. Augustine spiritualized everything, arguing that the kingdom is the church, the millennium is the church age, and the new earth is heaven. The all-millennial concept is held by the Catholic Church and most old mainline Protestant denominations. That's a fact. After that view comes the post-millennial view or post-millennialism. The third view of the end times is called post-millennialism developed in the 1600s by a Unitarian named David Whitby. The post-mill view holds that the church age will gradually evolve into a golden age when the church will rule over all the world. Do we see that, you guys? ha 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 ha. All right. this will be accomplished through the Christianization of the nations and Christ will come after this. This is key. Now listen to this. By 1900, nearly all Protestant Christianity held this viewpoint. However, post-millennialism died with the outbreak of the First World War, which undermined one of its fundamental assumptions, and that is the inevitability of progress. Post-Mills explained, uh, post-millennialism, excuse me, explained away the many Bible prophecies in the Bible that clearly state that society is going to get worse rather than better as the time approaches for the Lord's return in Matthew 24 and 2 Timothy 3. It also lacked a consistent biblical base. Post-millennialism necessitated literalizing prophecies concerning the millennium while spiritualizing prophecies about the personal presence of the Lord during the millennium. So again, they thought that everything was getting better, society's getting better and better and better. We're going to usher into, really into this world, a kingdom for the Lord. But when things really took a downturn with World War I and then World War II, that view is not even, I don't even know if it's a major one today. Now the fourth view out there is called modern premillennialism. The modern pre-mill viewpoint crystallized in the early 1800s among the Plymouth Brethren in England. This viewpoint revived the historic pre-mill view. That's the one we saw at the very beginning. Except that the second coming consists of two stages. This is the change or the difference. First, an appearing of Jesus in the heavens for the church. You guys following me? And the second, a return to the earth With this church, this concept of the rapture has come to be known as a pre tribulational rapture. That means before the tribulation, because the church is taken out of the world before the tribulation begins. Do you remember? This is just a side note. Do you remember, or can you think of why most Jews did not um, recognize our Lord's first advent, his first coming? What were they looking for? They were looking for a Messiah and they're still looking for a Messiah. What were they looking for? They were looking for one who would fulfill all the prophecies in the Old Testament, right? The suffering servant and the conquering hero. They really stood on the conquering hero thing because they were being ruled by Rome. So God had them split up, right? This this prophecy that oftentimes they're even, they're right in, in, I see it all the time when I'm reading the prophets. The Old Testament major prophets, minor prophets. Sometimes they're in one sentence right next to another first coming, second coming. I know of at least one instance where it's even in the same verse. First coming in the second part of the verse is his second coming right there in the same verse. So the Jews couldn't understand it, or at least not a lot of them did, right? And so they missed it. I'm thinking maybe that's gonna be the same thing right now. That his second coming is also split. And again, I'll we'll show you what I mean. Pre-tribulational rapture and his coming with his church afterwards. Actually, I'm convinced of it, but let's see if I can convince you all. Now, after getting a general overview of the four main views of, or ways of looking at eschatology, let's begin with our commonalities. And there's two major ones. All right, there's all kinds of ways to study eschatology, right? We can look at all the commonalities among all the people out there, and then we can just focus on it a little bit. But let's, let's focus on these two similarities amongst these four views. Number one, first, all agree that Jesus is coming back for his saints. Amen? Amen. Second, all agree that the redeemed will spend eternity in the presence of God. Amen? Good. These two points are far more important than the points of disagreement. I can't underline that enough. That's why I said what I did at the beginning. And I'll probably say it another time or two. However, the areas of disagreement are significant because the key to these differences is the approach to scripture. Spiritualizing scripture results in a awe mill or post-mill viewpoint. Accepting scripture literally, however, Results in a pre mill viewpoint, both historic pre mill, right, and modern pre mill. All right. So far, so good, you guys. You guys see these four graphs here? I tried to show you guys or give you guys some, some pictures if you want to look at each one of these. Uh, figure one is historic premillennialism, right, if it's mapped out. Figure two is all millennialism. Figure three is post-millennialism, and figure four is modern premillennialism. don't have time to just go through each one of those, but you guys have them. They're in your notes. So after getting an overview of the four major views, we want to next look at how the modern pre-mill position puts everything together. Now, I already let you know, this is my view of the end times, not because... And again, not because I learned this from John MacArthur because I didn't, he was never my professor other than one or two times. Not because a seminary professor convinced me of this. This, like I said at the very beginning, this has been my own study of scripture and reading scripture over and over and over and over and over again until where I finally thought, okay, I understand what the prophets are saying in the Old Testament. I understand what, they're, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 and 25. On the Olivet discourse, I understand what what Thessalonians and Revelation is talking about. I get it. Thank you, Lord. So let's look at this. Now, we'll start. Okay, I need to keep going. (laughs) There's just so much to say. There really is. A chronology of end times events must be pieced together from passages in the Old and New Testaments. No one prophet was given the entire end times scenario. When looking into the future, prophets saw the big events God showed them, but without a sense of all the time that would pass between the events. The way a hiker see a row of mountaintops in the distance, just like that, but not the valleys between them. I have that picture. That's an illustration at the very end of your notes there, okay, of a, basically a hiker looking at all these mountain peaks. You can't see the valleys, right, all the time. Just like when you read the book of... Uh, Uh, judges, right? That book spans 350 years of Jewish um, history. And we just read it in a couple days, right? A couple settings. So, we have to keep that in mind. Now, as is the case with any biblical doctrine, all passages related to that doctrine must be considered. Again, this is the job of the systematic theologian. Listen, after After staying here tonight, you guys are all systematic theologians, okay? (laughs) Budding systematic theologians, which is a really good thing. We all need to, we're all theologians to one degree or another. The following chronology is based on a literal interpretation of what the Bible says about the end times. The timing of some events like the war of Gog and Magog and the rapture is not revealed in scripture. All right? So just at the very beginning... So let's go ahead and start with the war of Psalm 83. Psalm 83. And you guys, listen, we're going to get an overview on all these different events that people talk about. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to pick out a few of the spicy ones that you all want me to talk, dig deeper in. And that's kind of how we're going to end our time tonight. Okay, so this is a war meant to annihilate Israel, launched by an inner circle of nations. That's your key, and it is key that have a common border with, with Israel. Israel will win this war, according to Zechariah 12, six through nine. I just finished Zechariah this morning. Amir Sarfati, or Sarfati, believes that this was, a war of, was the war of independence fought immediately after Israel was declared a nation, again in 1948. Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, which is Assyria, Jordan, Edom, which is, Jordan is Edom, Moab, Ammon, and Amalek, Egypt and the Arabs living in the West Bank, Philistia, all rose up against Israel at that time. You can go back to Psalm 83, verses four through eight. That's very possible. I think he makes a, a, a good case. The next end times war, though, that the Bible describes is the war of Gog and Magog. This is Ezekiel 38 and 39. Picture another war against Israel by an outer circle of nations, led by none other than Who's involved in 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 the Muslim nations all in the Middle East right now? Biden. <laughs> Joe Biden. No, actually. <laughs> it's Russia. He left a vacuum. We used to be there. We've got a, a handful of troops there, but it's Russia. And that fits perfectly with what what we're looking at today. All the nation named as allies of Russia are Muslim states today, that's true. God will intervene and supernaturally destroy them. Some place this war at the beginning of the tribulation, others at the halfway point. Okay, the next event on the prophetic calendar of events is the rapture. Now good, solid, Bible-believing Christians all over the world believe in the imminency of the rapture that simply means that that we believe that the rapture can happen at any moment all right and so we are constantly being told by the lord himself to keep your eye out right he can return at any time so that's where we get that now this appearing of jesus in the heavens for his church an event that could occur at any moment before between or after the above wars there are no prophecies that must be fulfilled before it happens it will occur before the tribulation begins. Now you hear me say all the time, if you come to this church on a regular basis, hey, I believe the Lord's return is getting very, very close. I believe you know we we can see all these all these prophetic events happening. But but, Pastor, you just said that there's no prophetic events that that uh, that would precede the rapture, and that's true. I'm looking at the shadow that the tribulation is casting. Does that make sense? Again, somebody likened it one time as like the decorations that you start seeing in September for Christmas. When we start seeing uh, decorations in September for Christmas, guess what we know? Thanksgiving is right around the corner. (laughs) You don't see decorations for Thanksgiving very often, but you certainly do for Christmas, right? And it's one of those Again, signless things that's going to happen. Okay, following that event, it appears that there will be a gap of time between the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation, during which time a panicked world, because of the disappearance of Christians around the globe, will respond to a dynamic leader out of Europe, the Antichrist, who will seem to have all the answers. And again, folks, this is where the whole UFO thing comes in. Our society, with, first with comics comics, and then, with all the, the movies, television, you know, pushing all these superheroes and then UFOs, I believe is just perfectly um, causing our society to be ripe for a person that will have supernatural abilities, right? And when the, when the church is gone, you can say, hey, it was all the aliens that I knew were here. Who knows? What's that? Legal illegally (laughs) Can't say that anymore, bro. The Bible says the Antichrist will come from the people who destroyed the temple in seventy AD. The Romans. Daniel nine, twenty-six. It tells us it will come out of the revived Roman Empire. Most likely he will emerge from the European Union since the Bible indicates that a form of the Roman Empire will be revived in the end times. Daniel two forty through forty-three. Listen, you guys, I'm not an expert, but I lived in, in East Berlin. I lived in Europe for ten years, or almost ten years, and I tell you that Europe is ripe for the Antichrist. They really, really are. Their whole EU is based upon. If you go out to, if you go to their buildings, they have like statues of a woman riding a beast. Um, all these different things. It's on their currency. So many things that their their um, EU building. Where's it at, Lois? In Brussels. It's in Brussels. Guess what it was based off of? An ancient picture of the, of the Tower of Babel. Okay? But that's what it looks like. It looks like it's broken on the top because it wasn't finished. But it is a picture of what the Tower of Babel. So you see all these overtones to biblical things. You're like, absolutely. They are so ripe. They're ripe for the picking. Okay, after his arrival, let's look at 6B, covenant. The Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel, Dan 9.27, that will mark the beginning of the tribulation. And it's assumed that it will guarantee Israel's security, enabling the Jews to rebuild their temple. I told you before, too, when I go to Israel, they've got everything ready. They really do. And I've been there and I've seen it. And we're going to go there again. We're going to go to Israel and we're going to go to their Um, It's called the Temple Institute. This is one of the many, many organizations that's working on this. Next, after this, the Antichrist will launch a military campaign to conquer the world. This is the tribulation. Meanwhile, God will rain supernatural disasters upon the earth for seven years. Number eight, desecration of the temple. By the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist will have conquered the whole world. That's by middle. At that point, he will go to Jerusalem, enter the rebuilt temple, that's your blank, and declare himself to be God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. However, while the whole world is believing and following in lockstep, there will be some Jews who will reject the Antichrist as Messiah, okay? That's your blank, and he will attempt to annihilate them according to Revelation chapter 12 verses 13 through 17 the Jews will flee to Jordan where God will supernaturally protect them okay after the tribulation again we're just getting an overview then we're gonna hit some of the 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 hotter topics after the tribulation Jesus will return in glory to the Mount of Olives Zechariah 14 he will speak a supernatural word that will instantly destroy the Antichrist and his armies can God do that? You bet. If he can create the heavens and the earth with a word, <laughs> he can certainly destroy Satan and all of his armies with a word. When Jesus appears, this is 11b, salvation of the Jews. When Jesus appears in the heavens, the remaining Jews will repent, according to Zechariah twelve ten, and receive their Messiah. As a matter of fact, in Zechariah, it says that one third of the Jews will be saved. Right, the others will have been slaughtered or everything else, anything else like that. Will have taken the mark of the beast, whatever, whatever it is. But one-third, in that sense, all Jews um, will be saved at that point. At the second coming, this is number 12b, resurrection. At the second coming, all tribulation martyrs, and some scholars believe Old Testament saints too, will be resurrected and glorified. Next, we've got the, the 13b, Judgment. Jesus will judge all who are alive at the end of the tribulation. This is your Matthew 25 sheep and goats judgment. Don't confuse this with the end of Revelation with the great white throne judgment. Two separate judgments, right? You're coming into his thousand year reign. He needs a judgment right there because there's still some, there's some unbelievers who are right there. They're still alive. Those who accepted him as Lord and Savior will be allowed to enter the millennium in the flesh. Those who rejected him will be consigned to Hades, and they will await the Great White Throne judgment a thousand years later. After that comes the binding of Satan, Satan will be bound in the bottomless pit where he can no longer deceive the nations. Do you think he's deceiving the nations nowadays? What do you guys think? Just a little? All the more. I' saying, "I just, I just cannot believe. I cannot believe. You know, all the things that we're seeing around us. How could people be? How could they fall for this stuff? Next we have the millennium. Jesus and his glorified saints will reign for a thousand years over those in the flesh. Revelation 20. With peace, righteousness, and justice. Peace is your blank. Now there are so many, so many Old Testament prophecies that talk about Israel living in peace. Israel being the head of the nations. Um, uh, the, the the wolf and the lamb lying down together you know what I'm saying the, uh, I think it's the lion eating grass you know it's kids playing with vipers do, would you parents let your kids do that <laughs> no that's why we're not in the millennium At the end of the millennium Satan will be released and he will rally many of those in the flesh to Rebel against Jesus. These rebels will be destroyed by God and Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire, according to Revelation chapter 20. Then, after that, 17b, all those throughout history who died outside a faith relationship with God will be resurrected and judged according to their works to determine their eternal destiny. Since no one can be justified by works, they will all be consigned to hell, where their punishment will match their sins. People who have done great evil will be punished more. Those who have done less will be punished less. Same thing in heaven though, different, not different levels of heaven, but different rewards in heaven. The Bible is very clear about that. Now, how are we doing on time? I've gained two minutes. The heavens and the earth will be consumed by fire. New heavens and new earth. Burning away the pollution of Satan's last revolt, Out of this fiery inferno will come new heavens and a new, perfect, and eternal earth. Go read 2 Peter chapter three. The 19b, heaven on earth. Heaven will come to earth. The redeemed will live eternally in the presence of God in the new Jerusalem located in or on the new earth. Revelation chapter 21. All right, you guys, so that's a, a broad Broad overview of all the different elements, you know, at least some of the bigger ones that, that are mentioned in God's word. Um, again, that's, that's all from a modern pre-millennial viewpoint, again, which I say I hold. We could easily look at every one of those points in depth, but we simply don't have the time. So, I chose a few of the more hotter topics or spicier topics, right? The ones that will get people fired up. You can thank me later. <laughs> let's start with the rapture. How about that? That's a that's a topic or a hot topic. Unfortunately. So, let's start with the word. The word rapture comes from the Latin vulgate rapio or, or rapio which is a translation of the Greek word harpazo, meaning to catch up, to snatch away, or to take out. So the rapture of the church is the event in which God snatches away all believers from the earth before pouring out his wrath on the earth during the tribulation. How many people have ever heard that, that the word rapture is not in the Bible? Raise your hand. Tell me how many of you guys. Rapture is most definitely in the Bible. You want me to prove it? Yes. Good. Doctrine of the rapture wasn't taught in the Old Testament, hence Paul calls it a mystery. Let's go to First Thessalonians chapter four. I'm gonna show you where the word rapture is. Unless I'm hold on, I could be getting ahead of myself. Let me take a look. Nope. Chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. Uh, why am I in Ephesians 4? I really need glasses, you guys. (laughs) All right. All right, here it is. So, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be, what? Caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be, with the Lord. That word caught up is the Greek word harpazo, okay? We're gonna to get to that in a little bit because I know I do talk about that a little bit later, but let me just give you a little preliminary view. The Latin word is rapio. Sounds like our word what? Rapture. It's exactly that. As a matter of fact, if anybody wants to look, I have a copy of the Latin New Testament here, and I can show you where it says that um, for you to take a look. Does that make sense? So I'll have it up here at the end. So a one page thing. I could not find my Latin Bible. Um, Otherwise I would have turned right there to it and said, here it is. Here's the word. Same word. Now we're going to get to this, but let's keep going on. I'm going to give you guys a little bit more here. The doctrine of the rapture wasn't Taught in the Old Testament, we mentioned that. Hence, Paul calls it a mystery. Let's look at 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. What does that mean? Not all gonna die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Again Jesus always or very commonly used sleep as a euphemism that's a kinder gentler way of saying it, died Now let's look at the timing the timing of the rapture is controversial some believe the rapture occurs before the tribulation. Others say it occurs at or near the midpoint of the tribulation. And still others believe it occurs at the end of the tribulation. There's another lesser known theory out there. Um, it's called the pre-wrath rapture view. That's the three-quarter view. You know, that the rapture is going to, you're going to go through three-quarters of the tribulation, but then you're going to get out right before the, uh, the day of the Lord comes but I can generalize it by saying it's the three-quarter view. Okay, it's important to remember the, the purpose of the tribulation. I cannot under or stress that enough. According to Daniel 9.27, there is the 70th seven, seven years, that is yet to come. Daniel's entire prophecy of the 77s, do you remember that? in Daniel 9.20-27 20 is speaking of the nation of Israel. It's all about the nation of Israel. So the 77, the tribulation, must also be a time when God deals specifically with, guess who? Israel. And this brings into question why the church would need to be on the earth during that time. Okay, let's look at this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. States that living believers among, or excuse me, along with believers who have died will meet the Lord Jesus in the air and will be with him forever. The rapture is God's removing of his people from the earth. A few verses later, Paul says this in First Thessalonians 5. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that obviously God did not appoint us for that, right? It seems inconsistent for God to promise believers that they won't suffer wrath and then leave them on the earth through the tribulation. One half of it, okay, by the way, halfway through the tribulation, one quarter of our world's population is dead. Okay, that is very much a part of the tribulation, very much a part of God's wrath. The fact that God promises to deliver, to deliver Christians from the wrath shortly after, promising to remove his people from the earth seems to link these events together. Another crucial passage on the rapture, and I'll give you some more at the very end too is Revelation 3.10, in which Christ promises to deliver believers. Do you remember that? From the hour of trial, this is to, to one of the churches of Revelation that is going to come upon the earth, he says. And this could mean that Christ will protect believers in the trials, or that he will keep believers out of the trials. Both are valid meanings of the Greek word translated from. However, Christ promised to keep believers from the hour of trial. The actual time, that's your blank period, that contains the trials namely the tribulation purpose of the tribulation, the purpose of the rapture, the meaning of First Thessalonians 5.9 and the interpretation of Revelation 3.10 all give clear support to a pre tribulational position now let's look at a few of the objections to the pre-tribulational rapture is that it's too new to be true, how many of you guys have heard that? Simply too new to be true. This is based on the belief that the concept dates to an early nineteenth century. Actually the doctrines existed in several denominations as far back as the seventeenth century. But Jeremiah and Daniel were told that many end times prophecies would not be understood until the time came for them to be fulfilled. Jeremiah twenty three, thirty, Daniel twelve. What matters is whether or not it lines up with the Bible. How about this? In the 16th century when Martin Luther revived the true gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone and revived the true gospel of salvation, his critics also dismissed it as, guess what? Too new to be true. They really did. Despite the fact that it was clearly one of the fundamental truths of the New Testament. Now, today, when I came to church, um, I want to do a little bit more research and I have two articles written by master seminary professors, all right? Um, basically debunking the truth or the, the, the claim that it's too new to be true. These guys are both um, historical theologians. And they've gone back to the early church fathers and show time and time again through examples, through their writings, that these men themselves Believed in a pre-tribulational rapture. Does that make sense? So I would invite you to come up here, take a look at these, get the names. You can get them both on the internet, I believe. Okay, so they'll be there for you. I know also, more recently, a guy named Lee Brainerd and Dr. Thomas Ice have been doing original research, get this, original research in the early church fathers in the Greek that has never been translated. There's hundreds if not thousands of documents in Greek that have never been translated in English. Again, why? Because it costs time and money. Right, And these two guys are doing original e- research into the early church fathers. And even in the last couple of years, they said that they found up to or about 70 clear-cut examples that the early church fathers understood a rapture prior to God's wrath or the day of the Lord. Does that make sense? Because we use the day of the Lord as a euphemism or I was talking about God's wrath, that seven-year time of tribulation. So that whole myth, you know what I'm saying, I can say can be easily debunked. Now, let's keep going on with 3B of the transformation. Otherwise, I'm going to get real late. The rapture will involve the transformation of our bodies to outfit us for eternity. Praise the Lord accompanied by the blowing of a trumpet and the shout of an archangel, Jesus will appear in the sky. The dead in Christ will be resurrected and rise up to meet the Lord in the sky. He will reunite the new, their new immortal bodies with their spirits, and the believers who are living will be caught up to the Lord and will be instantaneously changed from mortal to immortal. Again, go read 1 Thessalonians 4 and then 1 Corinthians 15. right, here's the verses that I read at the very beginning. Verses 16 and 17, 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, Paul thought he was gonna be a part of that generation. We who are alive and remain will be harpazoed. Caught up, snatched away, together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. How about First John 3, 2? We know that when he, Christ, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Folks, listen, I believe that a lot of confusion with regards to the, the rapture and the second coming comes about because people, they try to combine First Thessalonians 4 right here and the Lord's second coming Okay? And they try to combine it. Just like the Jews did before Jesus came in his first event, they blended them together, and so it was really unclear for them, and they had to separate them. Does that make sense? In order for them to understand how he's going to come the first time, then again the second time. Well, the same thing with this, we see we're going to have to keep these two things separate, and they very much are separate. I've got a table to show you guys. Okay. The rapture is to be distinguished from the second coming. At the rapture, the Lord comes in the clouds to meet us in the air, according to First Thessalonians 4.17. The rapture will be more of an appearing than a coming, for the Lord will not actually return to the earth. In the rapture, the Lord comes for his church before the tribulation. That's your two blanks right there. So he comes for his church before the tribulation. Because again, remember, we, we already read, he has not destined us for wrath. This is God's wrath against an unbelieving Jewish and Gentile world. What wrath does God have for us as believers? Why, does, why is there no wrath for us as believers? Because it's all been placed on Jesus Christ, right? All of God's wrath. Either it's all been taken away or you're not saved yet, folks. The second coming, keep going on here. The second coming, Jesus returns with his church at the end of the tribulation. He will descend all the way to earth to stand on the Mount of Olives. That's what Revelation tells us. Resulting in a great earthquake and followed by a defeat of God's enemies. Zechariah 14 also tells us that. Okay, now, Let's look at 5B, problematic post-trib rapture. All mills and some pre-mills, that's the historic pre-mills, have tried to combine these events at the end of the tribulation, saying that the Lord will appear in the heavens, the church will be caught up with him, and then he and the church will immediately return to earth. Some have likened this to a yo-yo rapture. You guys ever ever played with a yo-yo? Zip, zip, right? You go down and you come right back up again. (laughs) He's going to throw you back down again. So that's the yo-yo rapture viewpoint. Now there are some serious problems with that. First it destroys the imminency of the Lord's return. We're repeatedly told that the Lord's return is imminent and that we should always be ready. That's why every generation since our Lord left this earth has been looking. That's what we just read in Paul. Hey, we who are alive and remain. Paul was looking for the Lord's imminent return. Right, and you have Matthew 24. Um, 25 there, that is impossible if you combine the rapture with the second coming because there are too many prophecies that must be fulfilled before the second coming can occur. We know exactly, once that that covenant is signed by the Antichrist, it's going to be exactly seven years, right, three and a half years, 1260 days, the Bible's very clear. Any believer is going to be able to pinpoint that back, right? Hey, we've got to hold out for another week, another five days, another four days. You know what I'm saying? Type thing. That's how it's going to be. Where did I stop? Okay. A second problem is that a post-tribulational rapture eliminates a population to enter the millennium in the flesh. Here's another problem. In other words, if the rapture and the second coming occur together at the end of the tribulation, then all all believers are glorified at that point and all unbelievers are consigned to death in Hades. Go back to the sheep and the goat judgment. So you have all, all believers going up, getting their glorified bodies, all unbelievers going in Hades. Who's left to populate the earth? Because when we go up, you guys, we'll be like the angels and we will not be given in marriage and be producing children. Does that make sense? So, big problem. Third problem is that we're told to look for the return of Jesus. Paul told Titus that we're to live looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Titus 2:13. If we're not going to see Jesus until the end of the tribulation, then we shouldn't be then we shouldn't be looking for Jesus Christ, we should be looking for the Antichrist, right? Not Jesus Christ. Now here's a table that I mentioned, and this is just a very rudimentary one. There have been other very, very detailed explanations or detailed um, um, characteristics giving of the rapture and then the second coming, and you cannot compare the two. You see, these are clearly two different judgments. Same problem when you look at Matthew 25. I say it's a, the it's a judgment of the sheep and the goats and the great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation Two totally different judgments, right? They're not the same. But if you read it like it is, then you're gonna get confused. Now, if you wanna know more about the rapture and why I'm absolutely convinced a pre-tribulational, pre-millennial type of guy, then go to my sermons, you guys, in the book of Revelation. And right before starting chapter four, where I believe we should place the rapture In the book of Revelation, I gave a whole hour sermon on the top 10 reasons why I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. I don't have time to spend an hour with you tonight. Go to that sermon, okay, and that's just my viewpoint. And if you wanna talk about any one of those, I'm more than willing to talk through those different points. I just don't have the time tonight. So you guys ready for the next spicy topic to talk about? How about the tribulation? The rapture will be followed by a seven-year tribulation. Matthew 24, 21 says this, For then there will be a great tribulation such as, has, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor shall, nor ever shall. This is 1B, you guys, biblical basis. The first mention of the tribulation is in Deuteronomy 4, 27-30. Moses warned Israel that if they, would, if they were unfaithful to God in the latter days, they would come under distress and the result would be their return to the Lord. Jeremiah called it the time of Jacob's distress in Jeremiah 30. Daniel called it a time of distress and prophesied it would be the worst period of trouble in the history of the Jewish nation. Now, let's keep going on. Isaiah 24 and the entire book of Zephaniah are devoted to it excuse me, and Zechariah prophesied that two-thirds of the Jewish people will perish during that time. I already mentioned that. Of the remnant remaining, he wrote this, I, the Lord, will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined. Go look at Zechariah. Like I said, I just finished that um, this morning, talking about Israel. As this happened to be in my, in my Old Testament reading. I've, tomorrow, Lord willing, in the morning, I'll finish Malachi, and there I'm done with Uh, done with that for this year. Malachi stated it would be a time of refining for the Jews. Malachi 3, 1 through 4. And finally, 14 chapters in Revelation focus on it. And guess what? Chapters 6 through 19. Not one time is the church mentioned. Do you realize that? Not one time. So, what is the scope of the tribulation? Scope is this, all the nations of the world will experience catastrophic calamities. Isaiah 2, Zephaniah 1, Psalm 75. Over and over and over again, we're told that the calamities will come over the whole world. Just like some people try to say, nah, the flood was just some localized flood thing. You know what I'm saying? Really? (laughs) So, you know, and same same thing with tribulation. It's these, these are, this is a worldwide tribulation over the entire globe, right? All the oceans, all the fresh waters, all these things are going to be affected. Next thing we want to look at when discussing the tribulation is the length. Daniel said that God would accomplish all his purposes for the Jewish people during a period of 70 weeks. These 70 weeks are groups of seven or of seven years. So that's 490 years 69 of those weeks or 483 years would lead up to the death of Messiah and guess what to the day the final week of the years would occur at the end of the age right before the return of Messiah Daniel 9 24 through 27 this concluding week of years or seven years corresponds to the tribulation Daniel says it will mark the time when the prince who is to come will make desolate a reference to the antichrist this is that prince to come the timing established by Daniel is confirmed in the book of Revelation where the tribulation is divided into two periods of three and a half years. Revelation 11 and then again in Revelation 13, 5. The midpoint will occur when the Antichrist enters the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, stops the sacrifices, and declares himself to be God. At that point, the Jews will then say, that is not our Messiah. We've been duped, Right? And they will get saved and they will run for their lives and be and hide out in Jordan for the remainder of the three and a half years or 1260 days left. So when will all of, this, all of this begin? Well, the Bible says in general terms that the tribulation will start after the Jews have been reestablished in their homeland. Guess where they are right now? The church has been waiting for almost 2,000 years for this to happen, right? My father-in-law who... Um, was uh, fighting for the merchant marines or in the merchant marines during World War II, saw that come about. That was huge for the believers back then. I remember asking him, hey, how big of a sign was this? He says it was absolutely huge for believers to see Israel reestablish in the space of a day, right? Specifically, the Bible says it will begin, um, excuse me, at a time when all the world comes together against Israel over the issue of who will control the city of Jerusalem. Today, the United Nations, the European Union, the Vatican, the Arab nations are all demanding that the Jews surrender their sovereignty over Jerusalem. Is that actual? You bet. You bet it is. They are continually taking firing shots at at Israel over Jerusalem and over really the land. The specific event that will mark the seven-year countdown of the tribulation will be the signing of a covenant, that's your blank, between Israel and the Antichrist that will most likely guarantee Israel's safety and allow the Jews to rebuild their temple. You guys, do not ever worry about the Abrahamic Accords or will this be the covenant or something like that. We won't be here. We won't be here to see that. You won't be here to recognize who the Antichrist is either. That will all come about after Right? After the rapture. Jesus said that the tribulation will be a time of unparalleled horror. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 21. Such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. So horrible, so terrible that if it were longer than seven years, it would result in the destruction of all life. He said it's a good thing that those those days were cut shorter. So what is the purpose of the tribulation? This is number 6B. One purpose of the tribulation is to satisfy the perfect justice of God as he punishes the sins of a world full of people who refuse to believe and follow him. Has our world just grown harder and harder towards Christ? Do you guys know how much persecution is going on around the world? Our brothers and sisters, I kid you not, in Africa are being slaughtered by the hundreds. And then in the Arab nations, they're just being hunted down. And I mean that second reason for the tribulation is to bring people to salvation. Even when God pours out his wrath, his purpose is not to destroy, but to save. Isaiah 26, 9 says this. When the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Amen. Many will continue to reject him, but many others will be brought to repentance. That's who we see in the book of Revelation when it talks about the saints down on earth. Hey, there's going to be a lot of people who do get saved. How many of you have relatives and friends who are not yet saved? Have you told them about what's gonna happen? Maybe they're gonna be some of the ones, right? That's what one of our little rapture sticks are for too. The other key topic that needs to be addressed is that of the second coming. This is 8a. The second coming will end the tribulation and inaugurate the millennium. Zechariah 14, two through four and verse nine. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and the Lord will be the king over all the earth. Literal or figurative? I believe with all my heart it's literal. The two great prophetic symbols of the Messiah in the Old Testament are the suffering lamb, write it down. That's your blank, Isaiah 53, 7, and the conquering lion, Isaiah 31, four through five. He is pictured with the same symbols in the New Testament prophecy in Revelation five, five and six. The suffering lamb prophecies were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. However, make no mistake, the conquering lion prophecies will be fulfilled at his second coming and I cannot wait. Let's look at the certainty, 1B, the oldest second coming prophecy in the Bible is found in the book of what? Jude. Well, let's read it and you'll figure it out. Verse 14. It is also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him kind of interesting huh how about this one another ancient prophecy is in the book of job which many scholars believe is the oldest book of the bible and job said this in job 19 verse 25 as for me i know that my redeemer lives and at the last he will take his stand where on the earth even after my skin is destroyed listen to this yet from my flesh i will see god whom I myself shall behold. Yet his skin is destroyed, and yet in his flesh you'll see God. Oh, that's the new body, Job, that you're talking about right there. Job prophesied both the second coming and the resurrection. Then next as many of the Psalms, all the major prophets, and almost all the minor prophets look forward to the day when the Messiah will reign over all the world from Jerusalem. In the New Testament, Peter, Paul, and John all affirm that the Messiah will return to earth and reign, the archangel Gabriel, that's your blank, promised Mary that her son would be given a throne, or the throne of David, excuse me, and will reign over the house of Jacob, how long? Forever, Luke 1, 32 through 33. This did not happen during our Lord's first coming, (laughs) right? So it must be referring to his second coming. You see how all this evidence is stacking up for this view? When Jesus ascended into heaven, two angels told his disciples that he would return the same way bodily and visibly. Remember that in Acts chapter one. And most important, Jesus himself promised that he would return soon. These are his last recorded words in the final book of the Bible. Revelation twenty two twenty. Yes, I am coming quickly. And John responds back. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Love that. How are we doing on time? Right on time now. Look at that. All right. I should have enough time to go through this and get you guys the ice cream. Can you guys stick with me? We're in the last home stretch. Just a little bit longer, okay, you guys? So push forward with me. We're coming into the home stretch. Light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, last quarter mile. Let's Let's race here. So how could Jesus... Say he was returning quickly when it's been 2,000 years since his ascension, roughly. The Apostle Peter answered this when he wrote that to God a thousand years is like a day. 2 Peter 3 8. And then he explained the reason for the delay. How about this? 2 Peter 3 9. This is cool. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Let me, I'm gonna stop right here. If there's anybody here that does not know the Lord right now, either here, present, or online, today is a day of salvation. I, I encourage you, repent from your sins today. Ask the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior of your life and, and believe in him and who he is and what he's done and you will be saved. All right? God gives us a promise but we have no idea when that last day is gonna be So if you don't know him, then get saved today. God's given you one more day, one more chance. There's no guarantee that there's gonna be one tomorrow. I'm so glad that God was so patient with me. I'm so glad, I really am. The Bible speaks of two resurrections in the end times. Jesus refers to them as the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment, John 5 and Acts 24. It's clear that all church-age believers are resurrected at the rapture. Some Bible scholars believe that the Old Testament believers will be resurrected at the same time. Other scholars place their resurrection at the end of the tribulation, based on Daniel 12:2, along with the tribulation martyrs. At the end of the millennium, all those, I don't want to fight about that, right? At the end of the millennium, all those throughout history who died outside of faith relationship with God are raised. Listen to this, though. Resur- that resurrection, however, will be followed by judgment. That's your blank. Believers of the church age will be judged in heaven before the judgment seat of Christ. That's where I expect us to be judged. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Tribulation martyrs will be judged when they're resurrected at the second coming of Christ. Some scholars believe Old Testament saints will also be judged at this time. Now, pastor, I thought you said that all that judgment has been placed on Christ at the cross. What do you mean we're gonna be judged? Oh, all of our sins have been paid for in full by Jesus, correct? But what we do in the body now will determine how we are we will be rewarded in heaven. Again, there's not different levels of heaven, right? But there are different rewards in heaven that the Bible talks about. And just as I mentioned earlier too, there are different punishments in hell based upon what a person does. So, let's keep going. Those who live to the end of the tribulation will be judged at the sheep and goat judgment, Matthew 25. At, and finally, all the unrighteous of all the previous ages will be judged at the end of the millennium. This terrible judgment is called the great white throne judgment. It's Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Absolutely terrifying, if you're not familiar with that. The redeemed are judged on the basis of their works to, be, to determine their degree of reward. There it is right there. The lost are judged on the basis of their works to determine their eternal destiny. Now, just one sin is enough to send you away apart from God forever and ever and ever in in a place called hell, right? But dependent upon how much sin and what kind of sin will determine what kind of punishment. And since no one can be justified before God by their works, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, all will be condemned and consigned to hell. The unjust are also judged for another reason, all sin is not equal in the eyes of God. Proverbs 6 lists seven sins that the Lord particularly hates. And there will be degrees of punishment in hell, Luke 12, Luke 20, Revelation 22. And those degrees will be specified at the great white throne judgment. Again, for Jesus Christ specifically, all authority and all judgment has been handed over to him, correct? He will be the final judge. Now, the next major end time issue that we need to quickly look at is the millennium. We're we're right on time, you guys. The Bible teaches that Jesus will reign for a thousand years from Jerusalem. That's what the Bible teaches. Zechariah 14, 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one in his name, the only one. I love the fact that you just read through Zechariah through different books and it says, and the city will be called here righteousness dwells or it's, 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 things like that, you know what I'm saying? I didn't write those down, but they're so cool. This rain is, this rain is called the millennium. That's Latin for 1,000 years, Revelation 20. The rain will be worldwide, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 9. It will be peaceful. Is that happening right now? Nope. I see World War III coming right on the horizon if we don't change course. I don't know about you guys, but we're getting dangerously, dangerously close. Isaiah 2, Micah 4, righteousness dwells. Isaiah 11, and just and he's just. Jesus will occupy David's throne in Jerusalem, Isaiah two. He will be king, legislature, and judge, Isaiah 33. Believers will reign as princes, Isaiah 32. Israel will be the head of all the nations in the world. Go look it up, Isaiah two, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 60. Very clear, the glory of the Lord will be wonderfully manifested in Isaiah 40, 52, 61, 66. Holiness will abound, Isaiah 4, and joy, will pray, joy and praise will prevail. How about this one verse, Isaiah thirty-five ten, And the ransom of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. It just means Jerusalem. With everlasting joy upon their heads, they will find gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. That is not the uh, uh, current description of how things are. I'm sorry. As much as I'd like to put on all these different glasses, they can't color it that way for me. A rebuilt temple in Jerusalem will serve as the worship center of the world, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 56, Isaiah 60. And the Shekinah glory of God will cover Jerusalem like a canopy, Isaiah 4. Verse five, has that happened? Nope. Isaiah tells us that the lifespans of those in the flesh will be like the lifetime of a tree. Isaiah 65, anyone who dies at the age of 100 will be considered a youth, Isaiah 65, 20. There will be no homeless or hungry people, Isaiah 65. All labor will be productive and it will not be confiscated by others. In other words, taken over, right? Isaiah 65, disease will be curtailed, Isaiah 33, and those born with handicaps will be healed, Isaiah 35. So Why? What's the purpose of the millennium going to be anyway? Let's look at the purposes. Many ask, why not simply take all believers to heaven at the second coming and be done with this sin-sick world? That might be our plan, right? Like, I'm tired of this. Let's blow this popsicle stand. Let's get out of here. But God has made a number of promises that I want to finish with tonight that must be fulfilled for God to be a God of his word during the millennium. How about we'll start with promises to the Jews. That's your blank. God has promised to gather to Israel the remnant of Jews who accept Jesus as their Messiah. Look up Ezekiel 36, Zechariah 10. He will pour, pour out his spirit upon this remnant, Isaiah 32. Great Greatly expand their numbers and their land, Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 48, and make them the head of all the nations of the world, Isaiah 60 through 62, all three of those chapters. He also has promises left to make to the church or to fulfill to the church. God has promised that believers will reign over the nations. How is that gonna happen, right? And that's where here. are for a period of time. Paul said, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2.12. Jesus affirmed this in his letter to the church at Thyatira in Revelation 2, also in Revelation 5. And that is what Jesus meant when he said, blessed are the Gentile, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5.5. Jesus will reign as king of the world from Mount Zion, Isaiah 24, Zechariah 14. The redeemed and their glorified bodies will help him by serving as judges and spiritual tutors to those who enter the kingdom in the flesh and to their children, Daniel 7, Jeremiah 3, Luke 19. You get the idea. God still has promises left to fulfill to the church. What about promises to the nations? God has promised that that the nations will receive their greatest dream, worldwide peace. When the prince of peace returns, only then will they realize the dream of a worldwide where nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. Certainly not a description of our day. How about promises to the creation? <laughs> oh boy, your cats and dogs can't wait. <laughs> One beautiful aspect of the millennium is the redemption of nature. The fruit of the earth will be the pride of Israel, Isaiah 4 2. Waters will break forth in the wilderness, Isaiah 35. All members of the animal kingdom will live together in peace and harmony with each other and with mankind, Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 65, God will remove the curse and restore creation to its original beauty, balance, and peace, Romans 8. It's going to be like the Garden of Eden back again for those thousand years when Jesus is ruling and reigning. Then there are promises to Jesus that God is going to fulfill. Promises that he made to his son. God promised Jesus that he will be glorified in history. Isaiah 24, 66, 2 Thessalonians 1, and that he will reign over the nations from Mount Zion. That doesn't happen yet. It's not happening now. Isaiah 2, Zechariah 14. Psalm 2 presents Jesus speaking of his father's promise. I will surely tell of the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. I had the opportunity to exposit that during our last end of days Bible conference if, you, if you're here for that. Psalm 2, Isaiah or Jesus is currently a king in waiting. He's been anointed king of kings and lord of lords but he has not yet begun to rule. He's currently serving as our high priest before the throne of God, Hebrews 8.1, waiting for his father's command to return and claim all the kingdoms of the world, Hebrews 2, Revelation 19. It's going to come back on a white horse, right? A white steed. On his hip, it's going to say, king of kings and lord of lords. And out of his mouth is going to be a sharp two-edged sword, which is his word. Now, final reason. The millennium will demonstrate that humanism, which views evil as rooted in society and believes that the solution to man's problems can be found in societal reform, is bankrupt. The word of God teaches that the source of evil is rooted within man's fallen nature and that it is man which needs to be changed. That's your blank. God is going to prove this point by placing mankind in a perfect environment of peace and prosperity for a thousand years. Satan will then be bound, during which time he will be bound. Righteousness will abound, yet when Satan is released, most people will rally to him when he calls the nations to rebel against Jesus in Revelation 20, 7 through 10. And the millennium will prove that what man needs is not a new society, but a new heart. Is that what man needs most? You bet. There's only one to give us that new heart, and that is our Lord and Savior. All right, 10A, message of hope. The message of Bible prophecy for believers is that Jesus will triumph and we will, guess what, win in the end. That's the bottom line. We win right? First Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious moment it will be when we're lowered to the new earth inside the fabulous new Jerusalem. Revelation 21, 2, God will come down from heaven to dwell with us. Revelation 21, 3, proclaiming this, behold, I make all things new. And we'll see God face to face according to Revelation 22.4. He'll wipe away all of our tears, Revelation 21.4, and we'll grow eternally in knowledge and love of our infinite creator, honoring him with our talents and gifts. And he, these, amen to that amen. These are all precious promises of God that should give us tremendous hope. We've got a tremendous future, you guys. How about one final quote here? You guys have done so well. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not as some modern people think a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you can underline this next sentence. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither, end quote. And I leave you with that thought. My dear, dear brothers and sisters, we have such a glorious hope and future in store for us. I cannot wait for our Lord to return. Hey, there's some things, no doubt, that I, where I probably see things wrong, okay? None of us have perfect theology. I encourage you to continue to study God's prophetic word. It's a glorious one quarter to one third of our Bibles. Don't shy away from it. Embrace it. Understand that you're not gonna understand everything, right, this side of heaven. Be gracious, be humble, and you will continue to grow, amen? Let's pray to our great God. Father, we thank you again and again and again for so many, many things. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who have stuck through this summer series on systematic theology. We end this glorious study with this capstone of, of eschatology, what's to occur in the near future. Lord, we have no idea when you're coming back. We do think it's soon, or I think it's soon, Lord. It's never been closer. So Lord, help us just to be found faithful, each and every one of us. And I pray that we would call as many lost souls to the Savior as we possibly can, because every single day is another opportunity to repent from one's sins and to get saved. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here that still does not know you, that today would be the day of salvation, where they repent from their sins and embrace you as the Lord and Savior of their lives, the only one who can take away their sins because of what you've done on the cross. Lord, we thank you that you came the first time, and we thank you that you're coming back again. pray these things in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. amen. All right, you guys, just real quick, at the end of their booklet, I'm not going to dismiss you quite yet, because they are working on the ice cream right now. Um, there are several charts that I thought would be helpful. Can we post those, Abby? Can you, okay, this one is, the, this one is of the feast. You guys, it's super, super interesting. There are spring feasts and there are fall feasts, all right? And um, Jesus Christ literally fulfilled, literally, look into this, fulfilled all four of these spring feasts. Um, We have Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits and harvest, or Pentecost. He fulfilled those. Now, there's a summertime, right? And then we have three really close fall feasts. It is my my belief that during Jesus' second coming will be the fulfillment of these fall feasts. You can look into it. I know my brother keeps asking me. He says, do a sermon on it, do a sermon on it. I say, I will, I will. <laughs> Got a lot of other things to study too. Okay, the next one is mountain peaks of Bible prophecy. I kind of mentioned this. This is how we see things. They, in the Old Testament, they saw mountain peaks, you guys, like the first coming, second coming, New Jerusalem. Actually, they combined the first and the second coming, Right? And so I'm here to tell you, we gotta be careful that we don't do the same, especially when scripture tells us, hey, this happened once before. Gentiles, be careful that we don't do the same thing. All right, so you guys can look at that. Another one that's kind of helpful is just an overview of the end times. Um, kind of an overview. I've got a very complicated chart here if anybody wants to, to look at that. Okay, um, you guys can look at that one. A little bit more in depth, and then I've got Nebuchadnezzar's dream, if you want to know what all those kingdoms are, right, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the last days, um, iron and clay, in which case we see today, and it's exactly iron and clay, some really strong EU nations, some really weak ones, it's exactly, and it's really held together pretty loosely, kind of wonder how in the world they did that. But that's God's, that's God's sovereignty. I think it's gonna go right back there. I think the Antichrist is gonna come out of the, the EU area, the Mediterranean, which again, the ancient world saw everything that was the, the world back then. Then we have Daniel 70 weeks and Daniel 9. All right, and that's all that I included for you guys there. Again, um, enjoy the glossary, you guys. Um, go over those terms. If you wanna come up here and look at the Latin uh, Vulgate. There's uh, some really, really good books that I need to mention, and then I will dismiss you guys. You guys excited? <laughs> okay, so if you want one definitive study on the rapture, okay, and uh, I would probably say that this is it from Reynolds Showers, and this is a definitive study on, on the rapture. If you're not sure about what you believe about the rapture, get this book, and I think you'll have your, all your answers all your questions answered, excuse me. almost said that backwards. Then, uh, Christ's Prophetic Plans by John MacArthur, Richard Mayhew. He was, again, the dean of our seminary. Again, uh, the Master Seminary on Biblical Prophecy, Richard Mayhew, Dr. Thomas. He's a guy that worked on the New American Standard Bible that I told you taught. John MacArthur is Greek. Um, Excellent stuff. Another one, another really respected author that I like a lot is Ron Rhodes. How many of you guys have heard of Ron Rhodes before? Really good end time scholar. So Bible prophecy answer, answer book. I had so many books on this I couldn't bring them all to you. Um, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Okay, Another excellent author. Another excellent guy. It's this called The Footsteps of the Messiah. Study of the Sequence of Prophetic Events by Arnold Fruchtenbaum. So David Reagan, love David Reagan on a lot of things. Don't agree with him on everything, but um, Living on Borrowed Time, The Imminent Return of Jesus. Again, I don't agree with anybody on everything except the Lord, right? <laughs> Same thing with you guys. Okay, John MacArthur, Because the Time is Near. Another one, John MacArthur and the Second Coming. That's a good book. Read that one in German, I think, for the first time. Um, Bible Prophecy, The Essentials, Amir Sarfeti. Okay, just some essentials. Okay, and Barry Stagner. How many of you guys have heard of Todd Hampson? Okay, Chron- Chronological Guide to Bible Prophecy. Another very, very good. We've got a couple Todd Hampson books down here. Got one more from Ben or Paul Benware. It's called Understanding End Times Prophecy. Again, very, very good guy, Paul Benware. And then you guys, if you guys are just looking for some general ones, I know they look hokey, okay, okay. Here they are, Todd Hampson. Okay, um, it's called the Nonprofits Guide to the End Times or Nonprofits Guide to Revelation. They look hokey. Um, he's got uh, he does a lot of these graphic time things, but they are excellent. They are really, really good. And I've enjoyed both these books. So listen, you guys, I'm here for questions and answers. I've got somebody assigned to go get me some ice cream. So I'll be up here. So if you guys just want to talk. But you guys, you guys praise the Lord. And uh, yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed our time. You're welcome.